Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Hello, and thanks for joining us in the latest episode. Today, you'll hear part two of an interview with Larry Hanauer, Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. INSA just came out with some big recommendations on security clearance reform. In the last show, Larry and I discussed INSA's recommendations for improving the mobility of the cleared workforce. In today's show, we'll discuss how the intelligence community can improve its processes for recruiting and clearing personnel with foreign ties. INSA says the IC's security apparatus needs to re-examine historical assumptions about the risks posed to national security by foreign-born persons or those with close foreign ties. That could be especially important as intelligence agencies look to recruit a diverse and technical workforce with deep language and cultural skills. Larry, you guys just put out a, a paper on the challenges of recruiting and clearing personnel with foreign ties. What, what are some cases where the process is unduly difficult to kind of clear people with foreign ties? What, what are those foreign ties that folks have to, to clear up? Sure. Yeah, I, I think the clearance process for people with foreign ties is, is universally uh, unduly difficult. Um, and the challenge here is that the intelligence community, the Defense Department, national security agencies all need people who have native language fluency, cultural knowledge, uh, experience living overseas, uh, and, and other skills. And, and many of these people have friends or relatives who aren't U.S. citizens, who may live overseas, um, and that all complicates the clearance process and deters people with these skills from even trying uh, to secure a, a clear job with government or with industry. Now, investigators are never going to be able to learn everything they want to know about a candidate's uncle in rural China somewhere, but they can assess whether such a family tie really affects a candidate's loyalties or, or creates security risks that can't be mitigated. So to, to, to help get people with these critical language and cultural skills um, into the workforce, INSA's paper makes a number of recommendations. So first, we call on the intelligence community to shift its clearance approach from eliminating risk to mitigating risk. And so that way, people with low-risk foreign connections can get through the clearance process more expeditiously. Now, once hired, these candidates are monitored by continuous vetting tools, insider threat programs, and other post-employment security measures that further mitigate security risks. So it's, it's just not necessary to get to zero risk, if that's even possible, in the investigation stage. To further mitigate risks, we also recommend in the paper that candidates who have these kinds of foreign ties, once they've been hired, receive regular in-depth defensive counterintelligence briefings. So that way they're prepared to better identify uh, influence and recruitment efforts that hostile governments might aim at them. The second recommendation we make is that mission-focused teams in an agency, really the, the agencies that are focused on getting the job done, uh, work closely with human resources and security staffs to make sure that candidates who have these critical mission skills don't get dropped from consideration because of foreign ties. When the security staffs are looking at a candidate's application and they see relatives overseas, extensive foreign travel, maybe 
to countries that aren't so friendly to the United States, their antenna go up and and there are immediately hurdles that this candidate is going to have to have to jump through. Um, what that means, though, for the mission is that is that it's harder to get these people hired and on the job where they can do the critical national security work that's required. So by connecting the the, the mission execution teams with human resources and security, we we feel like uh, it's less likely that people who have these foreign ties are just going to run into a brick wall at some point during the process and never make it onto the job. The third recommendation we make is that all officials who are responsible for recruiting and vetting receive bias awareness training so the clearance process isn't marred by assumptions about security risks and loyalties. We're not suggesting that people in the process are uh, are, are consciously biased, but people make all kinds of assumptions uh, about people's country of origin, about the risks that different countries pose. And uh, what, we're, what we really want to recommend is that these kinds of decisions be based on data and on facts and that, that people get a greater awareness when they make assumptions so that those assumptions can be questioned and investigations can really proceed based on, on the facts that are collected. Uh, the fourth recommendation we make is that agencies take a flexible approach to candidates' dual citizenship, particularly with uh, with low threat countries. Some candidates um, who have dual citizenship by by birth or perhaps they emigrated want to retain their dual citizenship so they can visit overseas relatives more easily or maybe preserve educational or employment opportunities for their children, not because they have dual loyalties. But the assumption is that if you have a second passport, you must have some kind of divided loyalty and therefore you pose a risk. So we recommend that agencies revisit that approach and in the clearance process, make an effort to better understand why a candidate uh, wants to hang on to their to their second nationality because it may have nothing to do um, with with their loyalties or anything else that poses a risk. Um, and finally, we recommend that agencies undertake university recruitment programs that engage students who have critical language and cultural skills early in their academic careers and that agencies provide information about how to address foreign ties in the clearance process and mitigate potential foreign influence efforts early on. So that way, Students can understand what issues they have to address in the in the process. Um, they can be better prepared to deflect any foreign influence efforts that may be aimed at them, uh, and they'll be better prepared to get through the clearance process quickly once they're ready to graduate and enter the workforce. And so if the intelligence community takes these steps, um, it will be better able to foster diversity in the workforce, bring in people with a range of different perspectives and expertise, uh, and it will be able to take advantage of the language and cultural skills that, that many people patriotic Americans bring to the table. Yeah. And I mean, those are a pretty wide range of policy recommendations, again, that that I think the executive branch could all take on without any congressional authorities. Um, you know, one that I've heard come up before is just the fact that human resources and security offices are not necessarily as tightly integrated as they could be. Um, you hear this in the cybersecurity world in terms of, you know, how long it takes to bring folks on board and why would someone with a cyber background want to work for the government and have to go through a nine to 12 month process. And there are ways that you can mitigate that by having, you know, HR and, and security offices work more closely together. Are you seeing that happen at all at agencies today? Why is that so bifurcated? Can you get into that, that recommendation? Because that seems like that could solve a lot of these challenges that we've talked about, not just the, the foreign ties one. 
Sure. Um, you know, as in many large organizations and government or even in, in, in industry, uh, you know, critical functions are often siloed off from each other. Uh, and so that's often the case here when, when dealing with recruiting or human resources on the one hand and the security functions in another. Um, you know, the challenge that, that the cleared community faces, government and cleared contractors, is that, you know, they're in a huge competition for talent. As you noted, you know, there are a lot of people with critical skills, you know, whether they're uh, language and cultural skills, like we've been talking about in this paper, or maybe cybersecurity or technological skills, they can go to a lot of different places. They can go work for a commercial company that isn't going to make them go through a nine to 12 month vetting process that's probably going to pay them more because many commercial companies are able to pay better than, than the government pay scale. Um, and so, you know, the intelligence community and, and the government as a whole really needs to step up if it's going to want to recruit people with these with these critical skills who have options. Now, what the way the hiring process typically works in government is that first you you go to an agency and you you interview for a job and if they want to hire you they decide you've got the skills you've got the experience necessary to do a job then you get a conditional offer of employment and that's conditional upon getting a security clearance. So then they transfer your 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 file over to the security folks to start the background investigation, gather information, and ultimately adjudicate your clearance. And then if you need it, get a polygraph as well. So so the 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 hiring and the security process are really in two different stages. And what that means is that they're just a lot less likely the the, the people in the human resources and the security silos are a lot less likely to communicate with each other until everything is all wrapped up in a bow and you're ready to be hired. But, you know, as we mentioned in our in our paper, um, what what that means is that people who have really critical skills that the intelligence community needs, you know, people who might have, let's say, native level Chinese language skills are, uh, are, are offered a job because the intelligence community wants them. And then they just can't get through the security process because there are too many questions they can't answer. They have foreign, extensive foreign travel that the security folks want to look into. They have relatives overseas um, who maybe can't be investigated uh, to the same level of detail as your your relatives or your or your friends here in the United States. And so what happens is your your case just kind of hits a brick wall in the security realm, and the people who are waiting for you to show up and and do the job they want you to do are are just waiting and waiting and waiting. And uh, so we just feel like better communication between the the human resources people, the mission-focused teams that want to hire a candidate, and the security folks um, will help ensure that that people with those critical skills don't just hit that brick wall. The the mission-focused teams might be able to provide the security uh, the security team uh, with additional insights into the 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 reasons why this candidate is is facing obstacles. Or maybe the security team just just needs to go back to the candidate with more and more and more requests to explain different travel, to explain you know relatives they have overseas and 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 whatever concerns um, the security teams have. So more and more communication as well between security and a candidate will also help ensure that whatever concerns a, a security has can actually be addressed. All too often, security finds something of concern and they don't really tell the candidate what's going on. And so the candidate can't provide information that might mitigate the concerns. So better communication all around is really a solution that, that would eliminate a lot of problems. And again, that's Larry Hanauer, Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, 
Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners. Unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions. Combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. We're speaking with Larry Hanauer, Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, about how intel agencies can improve the clearance process for people with foreign connections. You mentioned also the the need for some sort of bias training. You know, are you seeing bias training at, at agencies today specifically focused on some of these perhaps outdated attitudes about foreign ties in certain places? like China, at, at security offices specifically, so that they might have more of that sort of granular view of these ties instead of just making assumptions. Yeah. The need here is is for this kind of bias awareness training, just so, so that security officers and others become more aware of the assumptions they're making. Um, we're not saying that China doesn't pose a significant threat to U.S. national security. It does. But clearance decisions are made at an individual level, right? The security officers aren't being asked to make a decision as to whether China is is threatening sensitive U.S. information. They're asked to make a determination as to whether a particular person who might have uh, family ties to China poses a security risk. And so it's all too easy to just make an assumption that, well, you know, they've got family in China, that family is going to be manipulated by the government and pressured, and, and so that's going to put pressure on this candidate, um, and so therefore they they they're a security risk. But there are a lot of assumptions in that. And what we're recommending is that by by getting this kind of bias awareness training, security officers and others can really unpack those those assumptions um, and try to make decisions that are fact based and that really look at the individual candidate in question. Even if we just look at, I mean, let's put China aside, you know, if someone has ties to Belgium, does that make them less of a risk? We, we sort of assume Belgium is an ally and we work closely with Belgium and we often share intelligence with Belgium. So if you have ties to Belgium, um, maybe you're not really a security risk. But it's entirely possible that, you know, your family in Belgium uh, has connections to third countries that are hostile to the United States and could be manipulated. So, but in all likelihood, a security officer is not going to look at someone with ties to Belgium quite as rigorously as someone who has family ties in a place like China or Russia. So uh, there there may be merit to, to some of these personal ties, but what there isn't merit to is making an assumption off the bat that certain kinds of connections or certain kinds of family ties or certain kinds of foreign travel is benign while other kinds are are something else. Got it. And, and so, so many of these, these policies have kind of legacies that are rooted Many many years back into the Cold War, uh, when you're talking when you're talking just about establishing trust, bringing folks into the national security community, obviously the Trusted Workforce 2.0, as we've alluded to several times today, is aimed at really modernizing that process. Can you talk about what else INSA is really paying attention to when it comes to just updating this whole vetting process in the national security community? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so the security clearance process is, is critically important for government and for industry. And so INSA is very heavily engaged on a, on a lot of issues related to uh, security clearance processing. So we're continually engaged on the implementation of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative. Um, we regularly engage officials uh, in the intelligence community, in other executive branch agencies, and in Congress uh, on the effectiveness of continuous vetting, which is a, a key element of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 program, uh, on the rollout of the National Background Investigation Services Computer System, or NBIS, uh, which is the, the computer database that's going to provide sort of a, the, the underpinning of the information that Trusted Workforce 2.0 depends on. Um, and we also look at ways just to make the clearance and adjudication process more efficient for both government staff uh, and contractors. Um, one example of this is uh, since Commercial companies, for example, ones that have nothing to do with the national security sector, um, manage to protect their sensitive information pretty well without subjecting their job candidates to a, a months-long vetting process. We're in the process of doing a comparison of public sector and private sector personnel screening to see if maybe the government can adopt some, some more efficient best practices from industry. Um, you know, if you apply for a job at Google, they don't put you through a 12-month security clearance process. They do some kind of uh, personnel screening and they hire you and then they do ongoing monitoring of, of your activities in some way. Every company has different practices. Um, the government uh, sort of takes two steps, right? They do an, an extensive background check on you before they hire you you and give you a clearance. And then they also do the ongoing continuous evaluation, continuous vetting, uh, and, and, and monitoring of your activities. So that may be uh, that may be useful in some ways, but it also creates a huge burden, uh, not just on agencies, but it creates this huge, all these delays that hinder uh, people coming on board with clearances. So we're going to see if there's some best practices that government can learn from the commercial sector. We, uh, we also recently published a paper on the problems with the implementation of the uh, Controlled Unclassified Information Program, CUI. Um, this is information that is sensitive, but not necessarily uh, doesn't necessarily meet the standards of classification as national security information. Um, but the, the problem with this program is that it creates a thicket of rules for contractors that will complicate compliance with 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 contract rules and and just raise costs for industry overall. It requires companies to to categorize different kinds of information, set up different databases and handling procedures for for different kinds of unclassified information. And it's just it's a it's a it's a real challenging program. And we think it's going to increase costs and, and complicate contract execution without necessarily adding much in the way of security. Um, and then finally, um, we do a lot of work as well on insider threats. We have a, a council that looks at insider threat issues. Uh, and so uh, we look at best practices for things like managing the risks of remote work, looking at, um, again, bias, unintentional bias in insider threat programs that might um, unduly put undue, undue attention on, on certain uh, employees or certain types of behavior. And, and ultimately, we want to make the, uh, the insider threat programs the cleared contractors are required to implement more effective and more efficient. Got it. Well, there's a lot to uh, stay tuned for there. One thing we haven't talked about too extensively, but was pointed out in the mobility paper, but I think probably applies in a range of areas. Agencies kind of had to figure things out a little bit more than they've had to during the pandemic, right? When everyone had to go work remotely offsite, especially you know, you can't all get together in a skiff like you used to be able to. And they were able to, I think, basically figure out there's some work that can be unclassified and can be done discreetly from the, the actual highly classified stuff. The last couple of years, have you seen agencies evolve? Was that temporary or, or, or are they going to take these lessons forward as sort of a, a permanent way of doing business, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, out of necessity, um, some agencies did uh, change their practices so that um, so that some tasks could be some tasks that were unclassified could be separated out from a classified contract and done outside of a secure facility. Um, you know, during the pandemic, um, a lot of government employees and contractors alike weren't able to get into secure facilities where they could do classified work, um, or only limited numbers of people were able to go into those facilities because the agencies wanted to create some some social distancing, basically, in the work. Uh, workplace. Um, and so just out of necessity, uh, people looked at contracts and said, well, you know, the overall project might be classified, but this task or that task or that task really doesn't involve classified data. It's not a sensitive task. Um, that can be done on a regular unclassified system. It could be done at a contractor office. It maybe could even be done at a, at a person's home. And so they they had a lot of, they started implementing a lot of flexibility in contract execution. Whether that's temporary or not, not clear. Um, I, I think agencies uh, have probably learned that this flexibility helps um, increase efficiency and reduce costs. Um, it certainly enables companies to to hire from a broader range of candidates. You know, currently, if you're working on a classified contract, uh, you need to have a security clearance, even if 80% of the things you do aren't actually classified. But if companies can separate out certain tasks and do it at an unclassified level at a remote location, well, then they have the flexibility to hire people who, who don't have clearances to do those tasks if the agencies will allow it. So that provides a broader pool of candidates. It allows companies to hire folks, presumably at a lower salary because they're not paying a premium for people with security clearances. And so there's a lot of flexibility um, that, that was put in place during the pandemic that we hope um, uh, become, uh, you know, become standard practices um, throughout the intelligence community. Yeah, it seems to really get back to just the principle you, you described in terms of, you know, you can't eliminate all risk, but you can do a better job of perhaps mitigating some um, to, to make your, your life easier, I guess, as a government right. agency or a contractor. Right. I mean, you know, a good example of a project that involves both unclassified and classified tasks. Um, let's say a company is is developing um, some some database or some you know software tool that is going to use classified data. Uh, for some analytic purpose. Well, it might very well be that the coding, the software tool development, isn't classified at all. What's classified is the data that the government wants to put into it. So if that's the case, it makes sense to be able to develop that tool on an unclassified system at remote locations if that's if that's more more uh, feasible or or if that's more efficient, and then ultimately move that tool onto classified networks where the classified data can be put in. So you know that's just looking at at what really needs to be done and questioning the assumptions that uh, and the practices that have governed the way government contracting has been done for years, which is well everything's classified and so everything has to be done in a skiff, everything has to be done by people with with certain security clearances. Well, maybe only some of that work needs to be done in a SCIF by people with security clearances. So if we can if we can break the tasks apart and do them more efficiently, then that benefits um, that benefits everyone. It benefits the execution of the mission. And that was Larry Hanauer, Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We spoke about INSA's recommendations for how the national security community could improve the recruitment and clearance process for people with foreign ties. These ideas come at a time when the government is considering wholesale reforms to the vetting process under Trusted Workforce 2.0. You can check out my story on INSA's recommendations on federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Justin Doubleday. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.